Hey there, I'm Chris Hill coming to you from Full Global Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia, with a bonus episode of Market Foolery. And if this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out this podcast. Normally, Market Foolery is me and one or two of Motley Fool's analysts, and we talk about a few news stories from the world of business and investing. But for this episode, I wanted to share the complete conversation I had this week with Jim Miller, unedited. And hey, speaking of unedited, I just wanted to say a quick word about yesterday's episode with Tim Hansen, a version of which was inadvertently published, and it included some pregame conversation between me and Tim. And if you were among the small number of listeners who caught that version, I must apologize, because uh, it turns out I dropped a couple of F-bombs. Thank you, by the way, to the listeners who quickly hit me up on Twitter and said, Hey, did you mean to publish that? I don't, I don't think you did. So we pulled it down immediately and we published the correct version, but still about two to three percent of our dozens of listeners got the unedited, uncut version. So again, I understand if that was a surprise or a shock, and I completely understand if the language was offensive to you personally. So I'm very sorry about that. I'm guessing some people were maybe a little upset by what they heard. Then again, it also appears that there were some people who were delighted by what they heard, based on the comments that I got on social media from Jim Taylor, who wrote, "...loved the unedited pre-show planning conversation, best market foolery ever." Scott Greider, "...you guys should do a raw episode like that once a quarter at least." From Brian Bishop, "...kicking off the podcast with a few minutes of a hot mic and some F-bombs. It's a bold move, Cotton. Let's see if it works out." And from Greg Mollenby, I would love to hear more of the pre-episode meetings. I appreciate that. And uh, Brian, you can pretty much never go wrong quoting the movie Dodgeball. So thank you for that. Uh, despite the enthusiasm and the support, you really shouldn't expect to hear that again. We will be doing more bonus episodes this year, but not like that. Let's get to this bonus episode, which is Jim Miller yesterday. Producer Dan Boyd and I went to Jim's hotel in D.C. He was in town for a couple of days, and I'm glad that he was able to make some time for us, because he had a bunch of things going on, and we talked for half an hour, and I could have talked with Jim Miller for two hours, at least. He is smart, he is a great writer, a great storyteller, and he is curious, which is one of my favorite qualities in a person. Jim, if you're unfamiliar with him, he has written best-selling books about ESPN and Saturday Night Live, among others. He created one of my favorite podcasts, which is Origins. Uh, season one was about the hit HBO show Curb Your Enthusiasm. Season two was about ESPN. We talked about that as well, uh, along with a whole bunch of other topics. So, here's my full conversation with Jim Miller. My wife said, "Hey, this weekend, um, uh, there's a, a local organization that's." Collecting a bunch of books, and I want to start to get rid of some of the books in our house. We have a lot of books, so I, you know, this week. Just, so just start thinking about books that you want to keep. So last night, actually, I was looking at the bookshelf and sort of looking at, and I saw Live from New York. Did you get rid of it? Uh, no, <laughs> no, no. I was like, oh no, I'm keeping this one because that was. I remember getting that. I I got it as a gift. It was either Christmas or my birthday or something like that, and I didn't know anything about the book. And I'm a fan of Saturday Night Live, so I just thought, oh, well, this is nice. And I just, and then I started reading it and I just, I just plowed right through it. Oh, that's great um, to hear. Because it was just, it, and the thing that I, 
I was actually telling Dan on the way over here, and one of the things I always tell people about that book whenever I'm like, oh, if you like Saturday Night Live, you should read this book, is Lorne Michaels and how he just hovers over the entire universe of Saturday Night Live. Um, and how one of the things I love in that book is how you have people who say, well, Lorne Michaels might tell you differently, but the way I remember this is X, Y, and Z. And then you have other people who are more defiant. They, it's their version of it. They're like, I don't give a damn what Lorne Michaels tells you. This is how it happened. Um, are you, I, so I guess my first question is, are you at all surprised? Because that was nearly 20 years ago you started working on that book. Are you at all surprised that that show is still as relevant as it is and that he, in his mid-70s, is still overseeing the whole thing? Yeah, I'm not surprised at all because I think that as... As Lauren's career has expanded, both into, I mean, when people remember he was involved with 30 Rock, he's done lots of movies, he has Broadway Video, which is a big, major media enterprise. Saturday Night Live has always been the favorite child. It's not a level playing field. And in fact, he's executive producer of Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers, and they're all uh, produced inside 30 Rock but there's no question where he spends the majority of his time and the majority of his focus. I think that as long as Lorne is there and dedicated to SNL, SNL will be relevant. And in fact, I expect Lorne to be there until the 50th anniversary and he will be 80 and my money's on him. He's not gonna leave. Um, I would, I would bet that he'll be there for that 50th anniversary special. What he does after that, I'm not sure, but I can't imagine him going back. And in part because he loves it so much and he has figured out a way, sometimes through happenstance and sometimes through just strategic decisions, to, to understand how to remain relevant. I mean, look, the show went on in 1975. So if you were just to be constant in that kind of milieu and in that kind of period, that show would be long forgotten. But, you know, you can watch over the course of the timeline of SNL, the things that he does and the things that happen on that show that not only just because the cast is regenerating itself, but just in terms of some of the structural components of the show, like digital shorts all of a sudden, like another way to extend the viewership. Um, he's been a master at that. One of the things we talk about at our company and on our shows is about CEO succession and how difficult that is for companies to pull off well. Lorne Michaels is going to leave such a massive vacuum when he finally decides to hang up his spurs. Like, It's one of the big questions in the building. I think that, look, there are a couple scenarios, which is that Lauren is so inextricably linked to the DNA of SNL and what it wants to be that a lot of people think, how can there be an SNL without Lauren? He was gone for five years from 1980 uh, to 1985. And if it wasn't for Eddie Murphy, there wouldn't be an SNL right now. It was, it was difficult. And that's no disrespect to Dick Ebersol and Gene Dominion, who were executive producers during his absence. Um, I think that there's another school of thought, though, that says... Um, it has to continue. The hard thing is because Lauren wears so many different hats and because he understands the show as intimately and intensely, you can't just 
you just, I mean, look, bottom line is, I think personally, the only person that could take over would be Tina. Would Tina be Tina Fey? I think it would be great to have a woman um, doing that. I think that Tina encompasses all the the qualities that would be needed. The question becomes, she's got such an amazing career. She's got now Broadway and she's got movies and television shows and everything else. You know, would she want to do that? Um, I think NBC would have to offer, like literally have a lineup of brings armored cars with cash just to even start the conversation. Not that money is the sole determination, but they would certainly have to it ins- helps though. Ins- incentivize her. Yes. Uh, I heard money helps. Um, but I, I, I just don't think of anybody else out there that, um, that has the combination of qualities It's more than just running a show. Let's talk about ESPN. Um, I've heard of it. <laughs> um, there are obviously, a lot of things about ESPN, the business, that are important to the Walt Disney Company. But it seems like at this moment in time, the two most public-facing ones are the streaming app and, and maybe this is one of those situations where the profile of, of this other enterprise is bigger than the actual business impact, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. And it's the new morning show, Get Up with uh, Mike Greenberg and Michelle Beadle and, and Jalen Rose and the, I think the combined salary of those, which has gotten a lot of attention, um, fairly or unfairly, is somewhere in the neighborhood of $15 million. A little bit less, a little uh, bit less. Um, when, you, when you think about, uh, let's just start with the app. Um, how, how important is sort of the over-the-top streaming capabilities? How crucial is that for the business of ESPN? Well, let's start, and I'm sure your listeners are familiar with it, given their financial acumen, but let's start with the fact that over a period of four years, ESPN has lost about 12 million households, and these are households that are averaging about $7.70 a month. So if you multiply that, that's it's actually some real money. And uh, I think that the critical question for ESPN and also Disney is, how do you compensate for that? Because... Prior to that, from 1995 on, remember, this started when Disney caps when Disney bought Cap Cities ABC. ESPN was like this little gem off gem off to the side, and they were able to engineer seven years of 20% increases compounded. People forget what the word compounded means. <laughs> it, it, it's just it's just ridiculous. And with that money. Disney bought Pixar and I mean, it, it's just Marvel and, and, and yada, yada, yada. The only problem is that I don't think from a strategic planning point of view, they understood though that that windfall or that economic equation was going to continue forever. And so all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, college kids are graduating. They're moving into apartments and they're not calling the cable company. They got Roku, they got Apple TV, they got all these things. And so you started to see that, that decline in the, in, the, in the base. So the short answer is OTT is a vital artery for both ESPN and ABC. They got maybe five bucks a month coming in for ESPN Plus, and they need to get subscribers to it. And in order to get subscribers, you got to say, what's your value proposition to them? And their value proposition right now is to come up with unique content that's going to, 
you know, make one pay it. I mean, look, we're paying Netflix, we're paying Hulu, we're paying this, we're paying that. We've gotten into a very big a la carte world, which we thought we wouldn't have years ago, right? It was just this big bundle and we didn't have all these other offshoots and we were just paying one thing and we were complaining about it. And now it's like, wait a second, when the Lord wants the answers to your prayers, you you know, he punishes you, right? Because it's like $12 here, $15 here, whatever. So while $5 may not seem a lot, it's another charge, it's another whatever. ESPN, I think, um, it's not a do or die proposition, but because it's visible and because OTT is such an important mechanism for the future, I think they got to make it work. And I think you're going to start to see some highly marketable acquisition rights um, that are going to be dedicated to ESPN plus. So it might be, let's say something like UFC or it might be something. And it's like, wait a second, I'm a UFC fan. I, I want that. Oh, that's not going to be here. Okay. You know what? I'm going to sign up there. That's the hope. And, uh, and they should deliver that. The other part of your question I think is, is equally as interesting because when you think about ESPN, right? More than $12 billion revenue going to, Disney every year. It's a gigantic, right? They still have 8,000 employees. Well, technically not now since the reorg and you have technology reporting to Burbank. Um, but I think that GetUp is one of those things that has happened to ESPN where because it's so visible, because people like you are talking about, wait a second, look at all these salaries and look at, it's you know three hours a day, five days a week, 15 hours of programming. I think it's an important, it, look, they can't afford for it not to succeed. Because one of the things that ESPN has to say to future talent, let's say there's somebody that they really want at Fox, NBC, or CBS two years from now. And this is a person who wants to have their own show or whatever. ESPN needs to be able to look them in the face and say, we know how to do this in this day and age. We know how to create a show. We know how to market it. We know how to distribute it. And you know what? You're safe with us. So it's like, Greeny is good at what he does. Michelle is good at she does. Jalen is good at what they do. So he does. So you got to make that show work. I think that it's kind of been unfair that people have focused so much on the ratings early on. I think a show like this doesn't, it's not like born like a beautiful baby right away <laughs> in day one. You got to get it on its feet. You got to massage it. You got to think about what works. You have to work on the rhythm between the three of them just from a pure producing point of view. Um, so I'm tempted to give it more time, but I do think that by the beginning of the football season, this needs to be operating on eight cylinders. I think the audience has every right to expect that. I think Disney has every right to expect that. And I think that they probably have till the end of the Super Bowl, um, in terms of runway and margin for error. And then if by some chance it's great. Right, and if by some chance it's not by the end of the Super Bowl, then yeah, somebody's got to do some major thinking, some major decisions. As a Walt Disney shareholder, how should I feel about James Pitaro, the new head of ESPN? You should feel like there's much stronger connection between Bristol, Connecticut, ESPN's headquarters, and Burbank. John Skipper, uh, I think he was a loyal employee to Bob Iger but I think he was a bit of a rebel. I think there were certain things that Skipper um, disagreed with. Skipper and Iger kind of didn't agree on. 
And I think the biggest one there is the NFL. Um, I don't believe that ESPN has a $15.3 billion deal with the, with the NFL that's uh, coming up in a couple of years. I, I believe I'm on terra firma suggesting that Skipper wouldn't have just blindly said, okay, let's do that again. ESPN now has the fourth worst schedule, right? I mean, when we were growing up, every single team in the NFL had three great stars, at least two or three, like great players, marketable players. You know, they, there's just not enough great product at the NFL. And at the same time that there's not enough great product, They've expanded it. So Thursday Night Football, which I think is one of the worst inventions since Liquid Prell, I, I mean, it is just, it is the epitome of greed. And the NFL owners should be ashamed of themselves because not only is, that, is it deleterious to the schedule, but the recovery time for the players, the burgeoning rate of injuries, I mean, there's just, it's a big bowl of wrong. But at the same time, they've done it and they've gotten away with it. And there's Fox paying enormous amounts of money for it. Um, so I think what ESPN saying is, wait, we got Monday Night Football. We're paying two billion a year, technically one point nine plus a hundred million for the wild card when they get it. Like, and we got the fourth worst schedule, and that's for like seventeen weeks of programming. Give me that one point nine, and I'll do something else for seventeen weeks. I may not get exactly the number, but here's the real key, which um, when I, I actually not to brag, but I broke it in a story for Hollywood Reporter. ESPN is now has distribution agreements that are wholly independent of them having the NFL. So it used to be in, you know, in, in the late 90s and the 2000s that they were able to garner those monthly subscription rates because they had the NFL. Now they, they can actually get that money without having the NFL. Now that's not to say that certain cable companies wouldn't grab pitchforks and start protesting. But in terms of the actual language, that's not there anymore. That's a big, big signal to them that they have you know, margin for error and they can be a little bit more creative. So to get back to your question, I'm sorry to be long-winded about this, Pataro is not gonna take on Iger about that, like the way Skipper would have. In terms of the rights that sports, uh, have been able to command from television networks. Do you see that continuing to rise the way that it has? Because people have talked about and written about the sports media rights bubble, and it still hasn't popped yet. But at some point, some network is just going to completely pass. It's one of the great paradoxes, isn't it, Chris? Because uh, it'd be like me saying when Amazon hit one hundred dollars a share. Now this thing's got a. I mean, this thing is just not. How can not this wet. go any higher? How can this go? It's a hundred dollars a share, and they're not making any profit. And uh, you know, I of course listened to that and didn't put buy any Amazon for my kids' college fund. Thank you very much. But um, the truth is, there is this weird disconnect, which is that we keep on lamenting, and the networks complete uh, continue to lament the rising acquisition costs, but there it is. I mean, look at the last NBA deal. It's enough to make you a Bolshevik. How, how, how was ESPN able to pay that money and Turner? But at the same time, look at the NBA numbers. And not to mention the fact that, look, ESPN produces, has 8,760 hours a year to produce. So at some point, something like baseball's tonnage 
it's just great because you just like four games a week and three games a week and whatever. It's like you, you just have these live events, which further distinguish yourself in the marketplace. Um, they've spent over $20 billion on college football in like, you know, in less than a decade. I mean, those big, that big 10 deal was crazy. And Fox did too. And Turner spent a ton of money. And what CBS spent on NCAA and Pac-12 and everything else. So everybody says it's crazy, but at the same time, what was that joke at the end of Annie Hall that, you know, um, his cousin thinks he's a, he's a, he's a chicken and everybody says it's crazy, right? Yeah, but we need the eggs. We need the eggs. And so <laughs> I, the question becomes, like, I think the end of your question is kind of provocative, which is, is there going to be a network that's going to just say no moss? And, uh, I think to a certain degree, CBS and NBC have decided that they're not going to just go blindly for everything that they can't. Fox seems more willing to do that. Um, although I think their debt threshold is changing. Um, but as long as that happens, as long, as long as you have all these bidders, and by the way, you have now Silicon Valley coming in, Facebook starting to do it. Amazon paid for Thursday night football. So in a way it doesn't even matter just what the four or five competitors are saying. You got these other people that are driving the price up, you know? So uh, I'm not sure it stops. I'm curious, since you mentioned Bob Iger, uh, as you and I are sitting here um, earlier this week, Netflix reported their earnings, um, their stock continues to rise. And now Disney's market cap is somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 billion and Netflix has in relatively short order, they haven't completely caught up to them, but their market cap is around 130 billion. To what extent, if any, do you think that matters to Bob Iger? To what extent, if any, do you think he's looking at Netflix and watching them creep up and views them as not just a threat, but maybe a primary threat? Well, I don't think he's doing it from an ego point of view, but I do think he has fully appreciated what streaming means to the audience. I think it's something it means to the customers. He wants to be in that business. He is trying to do things to move to that kind of world. He understands that it's here to stay. Um, I think some of his critics may have said, why didn't you see that earlier? But I think in fairness to Bob, he's arguably one of the great media executives of the past quarter century. Um, what he's been able to do since Eisner left. Um, so no one can bat a thousand, no one can anticipate everything. But I think that he isn't going to just sit around with his arms folded and let Netflix ride off into the future, particularly given what we all know, which is that kind of formula, that kind of recipe in the marketplace is something that the customers, they've, they, they've already decided they're good with it. They like it. It's comfortable. I was on the treadmill this morning and on the menu in front of me, um, there was an option for Netflix. It's not just a, it's not just a, it's not just a TV, you know, where you you have a little button on your treadmill and you you raise the channel, you can go lower. There was Netflix. I mean, that's the way it has seeped into our into the fabric of our daily life, and the way that people are just used to binging, and you know, they they love having it there. Look, they raised the, their prices like a dollar a month the other. Nobody noticed. Nobody cared. Like, are, you, are you kidding me? Who cares? So, you know, I don't know if 
By the way, I don't know if Iger sits around fretting about market cap so much because as you know much better than I, in the marketplace, the stock market, there are some crazy market cap stories that all of a sudden everybody goes, wait, why didn't I short that? The market cap was 300 million, you know? It's like, I mean, that's part of the legacy of the late 90s, right? And the crash around 2000. So I'm not sure if he pays that much attention to that, but he does pay attention to the business model. Pretty soon the Supreme Court's gonna issue a ruling on sports betting. If you're ESPN or Fox Sports, uh, what are you hoping for? Uh, what are you preparing for? It's like uh, renting a tux and uh, you're looking at your closet and you got the tux ready, you got the shirt pressed and you're like, am I going to wear it or not? I mean, there are certain companies that are, you know, already have it on and they're like tying their bow tie just to push the metaphor a little bit more. I think that ESPN has had a somewhat tortured relationship with gambling you know, it used to be that you couldn't even mention spreads. Then they started mentioning spreads. Scott Van Pelt himself was uh, on his show, was very adept at it. Every once in a while, I love it's so delicious where Al Michaels, late in the fourth quarter of a Monday Night Football game, there'll be a field goal. And yeah, a couple of people were interested in that. A couple <laughs> of people, like, because you saw the spread dissipating. Um, I think it's probably coming. I mean, not to be able to, I'm not trying to predict the Supreme Court. But I think that given what's happening in the rest of the world, and that's a topic that where I think there is some knowledge that we gain from the rest of the world and how they've been able to engineer this and put some safeguards on that are desperately needed. Um, you know, I think that a lot of companies now are, are preparing for it. And uh, it's going to be like the wild, wild west when it happens, man. I very much enjoy the Origins podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm curious if you could share a little bit about the origin story of your doing a podcast as opposed to writing another i'm sure your publisher is like no don't do a podcast write another best-selling book for me what publisher what is, and agent yeah what, uh, what what is the what is the story there and and how did you get connected with cadence 13 so i think that the answer is cadence 13 because i was approached by several companies to do a podcast and I looked at the world and that platform and it's, I mean, there were a lot of podcasts and I, I'm not good at publicizing myself. It's like Jim Miller's podcast and you know, who's, who am I talking with this week? And, and if you look at Richard Dyche, I mean, it's like, it's a machine. It's like he tweets like the, you know, seven times a day about what he's doing and stuff. I just, I have a hard time with that. I admire Richard. I wish I could do it. Um, but when I was approached by Chris Corcoran at uh, Cadence 13, which was then digital media, he said, look, what do you really want to do? And I said, I love telling stories about beginnings and uh, of origin stories. And in fact, my favorite part of all the books um, that I've done is that those moments at the beginning where um, you have ordinary people who create extraordinary circumstances and companies. That happened with SNL. Um, that happened with ESPN. That happened with CA. And, you know, to a certain degree, my book on the Senate, a lot of the senators talked about the beginnings of their career. You know, all of a sudden they decide to run for dog catcher and the next moment they're there. So those Gladwellian tipping points where something, you know, happens and all of a sudden, um, do you remember the game when we were growing up, Shoots and Ladders? Sure. 
right? So it's kind of like a portrait like that, right? Because all of a sudden you come up upon something and it's fantastic. And then the next moment, it's like the bottom drops out because you weren't expecting that. And, you know, all these things. And so chronicling those stories. So basically what I said to Cadence and to Chris Gordon, I said, if I could do that as a podcast, if I could take, you know, those kinds of stories, because there's a lot of stories like that that I come across. And sometimes people even pitch me like, this could be your next book. And it's like not big enough for a book, but at the same time, it's delicious and there's some great arcs to it and uh, a great journey behind it. So I'm very fortunate. They they really um, support your creative vision. You know, I think one of the great things about Cadence is that um, they they want to help you do what you want to do. And that creative freedom and coupled with their knowledge of, look, I'd never done sound recording and editing. Um, there's a guy named Chris Basil, who's my producer, who, uh, as far as I'm concerned, walks on water because, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I produce in television and I write, but uh, sound engineering and sound recording and that kind of stuff is just a different world. He's so good, he's so smart, and he's been a great partner, you know, and I'm, I'm devoted to him because uh, he really, I think he deserves a lot of the credit for, you know, helping Nargens become what it's become. That's how I feel about Dan, by the way. He walks on water. Um, Dan looks like that. <laughs> Dan looks like that kind of guy. Um, it, it's interesting because I was just, uh, earlier this week, uh, uh, I saw on Twitter, uh, this week is the anniversary of the launch of CNBC. And they showed the opening clip, the opening where Bob Wright, who was then the head of NBC, was essentially introducing the consumer news and business channel, that sort of thing. And it is, it's such a humble beginning. When if you if you think about what a machine CNBC is right now and how it is, essentially the go-to place for television business news. But I think that's that's one of the things about that's interesting about origin stories is not just how, in hindsight. It's easy to say, oh, well, that, of course, that was a hit. But if you go back to the beginning, it's like, no, it was actually a little ragged around the edges, and there were plenty of people doubting it, and it didn't really look all that great. I gave a speech last week, and I sh showed the very first night of ESPN. It's basically a middle aged white guy sitting in a chair in the middle of nowhere in Connecticut. It's like, how many of you are going to raise your hand and say this is the most successful media story of all time? Right. They're like, and the graphics were beyond. I mean, you know, beyond primitive. And how that becomes something else, I think, is just, uh, it's just fun to trace the pedigree of that. First season was Curb Your Enthusiasm. Second season was ESPN. Any chance I can get you to share a little bit about what's coming in season three? In a word, no. <laughs> only because... I didn't think so. Uh, no, only because they would take me out back and shoot me. And um, But no, the truth is that um, one of the things that is I, I've been doing over the past couple of months is putting together a slate where we're going to have much more frequency and regularity. Um, there was a learning curve in terms of like just how long these things took. And I also was busy working on a movie. Um, but I'm really excited about, um, this year. And I will say this not to be cagey, but, um, one of the things that I'm excited about in the slate coming ahead is it's going to be as diverse as I had hoped origins would be. We're going to have a music chapter. We're going to have another television show. We're going to have uh, something about politics. We're going to have something about news, another thing about sports. So it's like this buffet that is kind of like 
my interest or, you know, either because of stuff I've worked on in the past or because of stuff that I'm just interested in. And um, so we're going to be touching on all those things. And uh, as soon as uh, I'm allowed to talk about it, I promise I will. Um, there are plenty of people, and I am one of them, who um, at the end of the day, done with work, you know, kids are in bed, that sort of thing, want to relax. Um, I'll listen to one of your podcasts or flip through one of your books. What do Thank you, you. What do you do for fun? What do you do to just kick back and relax? I'm trying to learn how to do that. <laughs> um, I'll admit. Are you, uh, are you one of those people who only needs four hours of sleep a night? I, I, I think that um, I'm not one of those people who only needs four hours of sleep a night. I'm one of those people who gets only four hours of sleep. <laughs> I probably... Um, I probably should, it's one of my goals to learn how to sleep more and learn how to unwind. Um, I have a tendency to, you know, work pretty late and um, that's, that's, a, that's a problem. I don't, uh, my biggest problem is I used to be able to read a lot, um, just stuff that I want to read and um, I don't get as much time to do that um, as as I'd like, or as I used to, my um, youngest child is unfortunately going off to college and uh, I've, I've officially started the morning period. <laughs> um, and, uh, I'm not looking forward to it. I would say the only silver lining in a big dark cloud to be selfish is that, um, you know, I have a tendency to, um, put my children's needs above my own and I, my schedule is revolves around them. So now with them, out of the house. Um, no, uh, I, you know, I really want to be a smart architect about time management in a different way. Um, so, but, uh, I love your, uh, I love the idea this, this concept of relaxation, Chris, it's a very interesting concept. I think, uh, I want to get into that. Well, I think you just gave me a sneak preview of coming attractions because my oldest kid, uh, is just finishing up her first year of college. So I've got Maybe what if I do the math correctly? Another six years before my youngest goes off to college. So. Somebody said to me, "How do cliches become cliches, Jim?" I said, "Oh, they become cliches because they're true, yeah. and um, time moves fast is like the biggest cliche in the world." And wait a second, I thought I was just like taking her to her first day of first grade. It blows me away that you know. By the way, I don't even feel old enough to have a child, last child going off to college. But um, yeah, it it it. Totally, it it tortures your mind. It twists you into a pretzel on a variety of levels. And all I would say is, I'm jealous of you. Enjoy every <laughs> single day of it. It's coming fast. And um, but the good news is, in all seriousness, I mean, it's not like they move out of the house and then they go to a different planet. Like, and it's like, oh, if only I could like talk to Venus or, or right. like visit Venus. It's like, you know, I'm, they're still going to be talking and texting and. Venmoing. Yes. There's that. Um, but, you know, it's all good. It's all good. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Fool. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.